For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, should honorably discharged veterans have a chance at getting their citizenship and military benefits restored if they have trouble with the law? Beth Surdit shares her adventures canoeing with the alligators in a Florida river. And learn about Off the Street, a documentary made in 1968 about art bridging racial divides, finally getting its world premiere 50 years later in Tucson. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. It's estimated there are up to 3,000 U.S. military vets who have been deported. Most are living right across the border in Mexico. There are currently two bills introduced in the House and Senate to give these vets a second chance and allow them to return home. Nancy Montoya has the story of one U.S. Marine now living in Nogales, Mexico. Seven days a week, across the border in Nogales, Sonora, he makes the short walk from his house to where he works. He was born, but not raised, a Mexican. My name is Joel Diaz Rencon. I'm I'm a U.S. military veteran from the Marine Corps. Uh, I served in the Marine Corps from June 4th, 1991 to October 12th, 1994. That's right, Joel Rincon was a U.S. Marine. Rincon was brought to the U.S. as a small child and grew up in California. He is one of an estimated up to 3,000 U.S. vets who entered the U.S. military as non-U.S. citizens, honorably discharged, granted alien residency, but then deported when they broke the law after having served. They didn't give me the option of post bail and maybe hire myself an attorney to fight my deportation order. They said that was not an option, that I was considered a dangerous felon even though I was felony six, which is the lowest in the state of Arizona, um, next to a misdemeanor. Served our country, many in combat. Arizona Congressman Raul Grijalva and Senator Tammy Duckworth from Illinois have introduced similar bills in the House and the Senate to give these deported U.S. veterans a chance to redeem themselves and come home. And they found reality hit them as soon as they were done with whatever penalty they had been given uh, because of the uh, crime or infraction that they committed, that they were suddenly had no rights of a citizen to go back to their community. And that's when the enforcement side of of the immigration law took over and they were immediately deported. Now, Rincon admits he was on probation for a domestic violence charge when he was caught driving a stolen vehicle. He pleaded guilty and served one year in jail. What happened next, he says, was shocking. His family was there to pick him up, but instead... When I was done with my prison sentence, I was, I thought I was going to be released. Um, However, to my surprise, there was um, an immigration officer waiting for me. Uh, they said I had a removal order. I didn't understand why, because I thought I was a citizen the whole time. Uh, when I joined the military, they told me I would automatically be a citizen. They didn't give me the option to post bail and maybe hire myself an attorney to uh, fight my deportation order. They said that was not an option, that I was considered a dangerous felon, even though I was felony six, which is the lowest in the state of Arizona, um, next to a misdemeanor. We know they did something wrong, they paid for it, 
and now they're paying again. Many of them removed from their communities that they knew no other community except the one that they lived in here in the United States. These vets have been left to fend for themselves, says Grijalva. Most are deported back to Mexico, and like Joel Rincon, were left numb from it all. I was lost, and I was waiting for the daylight to buy a phone card because I didn't have a phone to call my family or collect call. So I was, I was pretty desperate, very desperate, almost to the point where I was crying. But being a Marine, says Rincon, he came up with a plan, get back home to Arizona at all costs. He called his sister. She came the very next morning, brought me some warm clothes, brought me some money, and I told her I was going to attempt to cross because I, there's no way I was going to stay here. I bought me some decent clothes, and I told her to stand by and wait for me to see if I made it across the border, and I did. Rincon has been deported three other times. Looking for a way to come back to the U.S. because I, I just couldn't see myself without my family and without my country. And you talk to them, they're still extremely patriotic. They would do it again. They would volunteer again and do it again. And, uh, and, they're, out, and, and they're living in a country, primarily Mexico, of which they have no, uh, no roots in. I still feel like an American. I feel, I still feel, I've never felt Mexican in my life. From across the border in Nogales, Sonora, I'm Nancy Montoya, Arizona Spotlight. Nancy Montoya hosts the next edition of Arizona Week, Friday at 8.30 p.m. and Sunday at 11 a.m. on PBS 6. For more than two years, you've heard me say that Beth Surdit listens to ravens and that she has paddled with alligators in wild and scenic places. The Mayaca River State Park in Sarasota, Florida, has recently reopened following the damage done by Hurricane Irma. In 2005, that's where Beth Surdit first met that river's most famous and formidable residents. Don't be scared said the guide in the boat next to me as the alligator lunged towards my kayak. I'm not scared, I whispered, looking down at the huge prehistoric head right next to my hip. I'm petrified. I watched the gator swim past, gliding parallel to my little red tub toy of a boat. The guide's breath whooshed out, and he said... I'm sure glad he didn't get scared and try to climb over our boats. Uh, yeah, me too. That was my first time paddling on the river, and I was hooked. Florida's Mayaca River is 68 miles long and lives up to its official designation as wild and scenic. It's a feast for gators and birds. I just didn't want to be the main course. The next day at an orchid sale, I heard someone yell, Hey, Gator Girl! It was one of my newly met paddling buddies. My behavior on the river, shock masquerading as serenity, earned me a new moniker. That first time stretched into three years paddling the Mayaca, a place that never disappointed, always enchanted. 
herons abound. Great blues, whites, tricolored, green, heavy-bodied wood storks whose wings whoosh loudly as they loft. Goofy and gorgeous pink roseate spoonbills swishing their spatulate bills in the water. Bold ospreys would swoop down right in front of my boat and rise up with a fish grasped in their talons. Anhingas, also great fishers, standing on branches, drying their outstretched wings. More species of birds than I can count. I only went with a group and a guide that first time. Most often, I paddled with one boon companion in a canoe. I liked the higher sides, especially when a gator gets close and lunges up out of the water, jaws agape. It's a rare occurrence, especially if it's not mating season, when the big boys bellow Stella in their own version of streetcar named Desire. The dark reflective waters usually hide who's swimming under or beside the boat. Eyes, heads, and snouts dot the surface and often sink like submarines as we approach. I have seen the spectrum of life, pop-eyed baby gators with stripes still visible on their tails, and once a 12-foot gator corpse feasted upon by black vultures. They usually amuse me with their hopping dum de dum de dum dum gait, but watching them feed is a dark story that whispers fear around a campfire. And then there are the behavior challenge critters that I would like to discuss with Darwin. A curious young gator, maybe four feet long, leaves the shore and swims quickly towards our canoe his tail snaking through the water. In rare moments of clarity, the dappled sun lights his movements just under the surface. Soon as he's close enough to figure out what we are, he swims parallel to the boat. The birds have gone silent, and instead of their songs, we hear some recidivist rehab diva's voice scratching nature till it bleeds. The gator submerges, now invisible, as we round the bend where the air is abraded with the scent of burning tobacco. There's one man standing, well, sort of swaying, in thigh-deep water, his white skin glowing in the tannin-dense river. One hand is conducting with a cigarette, and he's using the beer in the other hand as ballast. There's a gator heading in your direction, I call to him. And the guy, showing off for his beer can buddies in their boats, yells, Great! I'll go meet it! And dives underwater. I ply the paddle deep and fast, saying to my companion, This could be a Darwin Award moment, and I don't want to see it. Just keep paddling. Far be it from me to get in the way of that guy's personal freedom. I didn't hear any screams. So I guess both fool and gator survived. You'd think that telling gator and the idiot stories would be cautionary tales. But a ranger at Mayaka State Park told me 
that there are people who emulate whatever bad behavior they hear about, tell them not to feed gators, and picnickers are right on the riverbank tossing in hot dogs. They might as well be tossing in their kids and canines. There's even a warning sign showing some small poodle-like creature as temptation. The sad reality is that an alligator not only comes to associate humans with food, but doesn't distinguish between the food and the hand that holds it. Potentially, you're just one big snack, Bubba. If a gator grabs a human, even if it's the human's fault, the alligator is removed. That means killed. On a deliciously moist day, I counted 14 gator heads in the water around me. Squinting into the drapery of Spanish moss hanging from live oaks, I saw vultures gathered in the shadows. I stopped counting when I got to 48 vultures in the trees and on shore. I could discern no carrion in sight or scent. I never felt threatened, but I did keep paddling in case they mistook me for dessert. You can find many photos of Mayaka's alligators in action on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. And there are many more stories about the art of paying attention to the wildlife all around us, as told and illustrated by Beth Serdit. This is an experiment to allow a number of clashing interests the opportunity to interact with each other. Some of these interests are small and some of them are large. Many of them have never worked before effectively. One of the things that we did was assemble elements of what in America is known as the establishment on one hand and the people in the street on the other. Back in 1968, in the wake of civil rights protests and violence, including the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, a unique project was created by an educator named John Torres, supported by the Art Students League of New York and the Ford Foundation. An offer was made to a group of inner-city high school kids who had each demonstrated talent in art. They were diverse in gender, background, and race, and they were invited to a place called the Vermont Academy for two months that summer to receive intensive art training that would help prepare them for college. It was also the first time many of them had ever spent time surrounded by nature. Theater artist and amateur filmmaker Jerry Michael was hired to document the project, and a short film called Off the Street was the result. For almost 50 years, the completed film was unseen by an audience, until earlier this year, when Jerry Michael, now an 83-year-old retiree in Tucson, brought his cans of 16-millimeter film to the University of Arizona's Hansen Film Institute. Off the Street will have its world premiere screening next Tuesday at the Center for Creative Photography. I asked Jerry Michael to tell me more about the project, and we're joined on the telephone by Bernard Stanley Hoyce, a fine art painter who now lives near Palm Springs. Hoyce was 16 years old in the summer of 1968. An immigrant from Jamaica, Hoyce was the youngest of the students involved. I asked him if he thought he would have the same successful art career today if it hadn't been for the program depicted in Off the Street. No, I wouldn't, um, because I probably would have been 
holding down a uh, a government job like my father wanted to do in New York because hmm. I would have graduated um, Thomas Jefferson. But being exposed to higher education in Vermont, when I went to Vermont, my learning curve was like 2,000%, <laughs> you know? I had directed a theater in Peterborough, New Hampshire for two years. And during that period of time, John Torres whose idea this school was, he came over and saw some plays that I had directed. He sought me out. We became friends. And so we established a relationship um, over the next several years. Had you done documentary filmmaking before this? No, I had not. I was segueing from the theater to filmmaking. And when John asked me to join the project and he told me what he was going to do, he suggested that one of the things he wanted to do was to document uh, the project with film. And I said, great, I'll do it. <laughs> so um, that's how it came about. Your camera has a very easy eye. You never feel like you're intruding on what's going on with the artists. They're also extremely natural and not playing to the camera. And that gives the whole documentary a very fresh feel. It's, it's just as fresh now as when those film cans were closed in 1968. How big of a crew were you working with? Give me some idea of the scale of the production. There was no crew. <laughs> no crew at all? <laughs> no, there was no crew at all. It was, I was a one-man gang. <laughs> no, I just tried to stay out of the way and, and grind it out and, um, and hope that I was getting stuff that would make a film. Bernard, do you think that you and the other the students who were there were bothered that uh, Jerry was, uh, was recording what was happening? No, I, I think it was uh, more like it impressed us that they saw fit to give the summer the importance that we were feeling that was happening. Hmm. Um, it kind of added to the old excitement of being in the program. There was just so much activity. We took this as an opportunity to uh, produce the kind of art that we intended to going into the future uh, that we were like we were just on you know <laughs> yeah. and Jerry being there with his camera even like uh, the evening meetings and the, we had some uh, poetry readings you know and he was just like everywhere you know and then after a while you just got comfortable with it mm -hmm. because I was the youngest I was still assimilating and picking up on the notions and vibrations of being in the American society. So I was paying attention to everybody. But what I saw was there's a sense of comfortability that was that initially started from the very first week. When they started giving out uh, the materials for, the, for work and John addressed the group about uh, being productive, and the, the, the chances of um, making art your future, everybody was very at attention, just taking it in. And John himself was such a formidable person. Uh, his vision for what was supposed to happen that summer just seeped right in right away. And so everybody took it very, very serious. And it wasn't practice anymore. It was like we were on. It was like, go for it. Here's a clip from the film, Off the Street. That a friend of mine had told me about this program, and he was saying that uh, students would have five instructors, and they'd go up to this place up in Vermont and have uh, 
they stay up there for their whole summer. You know, like you get $10 a week, you know, to uh, keep you going up there and food and everything like that. And I know that this would be a beautiful thing, but uh, was this really happening? Was this really the situation? Because I was thinking I was going to see white kids that didn't like me because I was a black kid and uh, I didn't like them because they was white kids. The first, the first week, you know, I was very cautious about going over and saying, you know, saying something to somebody else because I didn't know how they would take it. As, and this girl, she walked over to me. She said, uh, her name was Mary, you know, and she said, you know, like, what's your name? And then we got into a little conversation thing. Then I started talking to a lot of other uh, white kids and black kids, and uh, they weren't thinking the way I was uh, told and thought and thought that they were thinking about me as a black person. And they were just thinking of me as a person. And I thought, how beautiful this is. We're going to grow up here, and we're going to change this whole thing here. Now, Jerry, you were past your student years by the time you took on this project. Can you give us some sort of encapsulization of where you were at politically at that time? I was involved from day one in protests, in marches. I was down in uh, D.C. Uh, when Martin Luther King gave his famous speech at, you know, in the shantytown down there. I grew up in Athens, Georgia. My family made it very clear from day one that um, they didn't want to hear anything derogative or negative or racial in their house. And I was just brought up uh, in a way that I, I had, even as a kid in Georgia, I had friends who were black. So um, I, I can't really answer that question. Well, I think you did, actually. Yeah, well, you know, a majority of the kids that were in the program was black, and they were being transported to the northern part of uh, America that was alien to them. They were going into the booty. Yeah, right? it's it's easy to imagine yeah, that a lot yeah. of these kids had not really been out of an urban environment. Exactly. Not, yeah. And um, Vermont Academy, it was a preparatory school for boys. It was like a spawning ground for the Ivy League. So, um, if the you know being from New York, you knew the Ivy League, you knew uh, New England, you know, so you're going into a wide environment. There's going to be apprehension in terms of how you're going to be treated and how you're going to be expected. So what they did was they brought the inner city to Vermont, and um, majority of the uh, the kids who were of age to go to college, they got placement at the end of the program. I think we had over 95% placement into higher education from the program. And myself being the youngest, they couldn't do for me, so they found ways to make it work for me, which was staying at the academy, attending school there, and finish up my education. We were hell-bent on not showing any kind of idea that there's going to be a conflict. I mean, they got off the bus, and everybody was thrown together, and let's get on with it. We were there to work, and we were there to do business. And so there was no there was no attempt on our part to to try to get people together because we knew that if we didn't make an issue out of it, people would get together. I mean, yeah. as, as Bernard said, you know, he was 16 years old, but we had 16 to, you know, 18 year old kids. They knew the issue better than we did. Why start out by saying let's all be friends, let's all be together? We knew it'd work. I would like to add another group that was 
came out of this in a very positive way with the local people in Saxons River. Yes, and, and from Putney. And from Putney. No, we weren't worried about the kids so much, but we worried about the relationship between the town and the, the, the students. As the whole thing was put together, we brought in people from the town to incorporate them into the idea of what we were going to do. So it, was not a, it wasn't a surprise. But as the summer went on and people came up from the town, came up to the campus, kids went downtown to get, you know, go to the drugstore and stuff like grocery store and stuff like that. So uh, at the end of the summer, the people were just ecstatic about this whole thing. They were hell-bent on continuing this thing and they wanted to raise money to do it and everything else. So it was a very, very positive summer. I'd like to ask why this film, once it was finished, why did it get shelved? I couldn't really get anybody at the Ford Foundation interested in it because they'd moved on to their things. Once I finished the film, I needed to work. I mean, I needed to have an, you know, an income. Yeah. In the intervening years, you had the film cans. You just carried them around with you from house I slept house them house. around this yeah. country. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I carried them with me for all these years. What was the key to deciding to contact the Hanson Film Institute? My wife. <laughs> she told me that I had to clean out my stuff out of the garage. <laughs> and so I, I took her at her, at her words. She said, you know, it's not fair. You've got to do something. You should do something. Now do something. And so I did. To have this film that Jerry made and to have it come to the limelight right now tells a story and connects the dots of what can happen when... You make way and help minorities and people that are uh, trying to get ahead when there's no entering and you open up the doors and let them develop for themselves that it can it, it, it's successfully it done you know the other part of the equation is art itself in this country we don't seem to have any respect and we don't value art whether it's theater or painting or music or you name it in terms of the big world of art that we throw around. We just don't seem to have the same need or thrust or interest or money thrown at it. And that's what it comes down to. And I think it's just a shame. So uh, here we are. And people can see that what's going on now is not new. It's just minimum in terms of what should be done and, and that we are capable of doing as a people. Thanks to my guests, Jerry Michael and Bernard Stanley Hoyce, who have been friends since 1968. They'll both be in attendance at the Hanson Film Institute's world premiere of Off the Street, Tuesday, October 17th at 5.30 p.m. at the Center for Creative Photography on the U of A campus. The half-hour film will be followed by Q&A and a panel conversation. The event is free. More information is at hansonfilm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.